reading verses 15 to 21, Genesis 50, at the conclusion of Joseph's life, we're studying tonight in our theme of the reason for God, and we want to consider what we find here. Genesis 50 at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, give us eyes to see, we ask, as we consider this subject of suffering And as we know that we don't have the wisdom that you have, we fall so far short. Your wisdom is beyond us. Your ways are beyond us. But yet you've revealed yourself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us help as we seek to plumb the depths of what you tell us about this. In Jesus' name, amen. We're studying... studying this subject of objections to Christianity, and we've looked at a few of them found in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And if you have that book, it would be great if you could read along with us. We won't be going through it every chapter of the book, but we will be looking a lot at various parts of it. A wonderful book, and I hope that you will take the time to read it when you get a chance. And this evening we come to this subject of suffering. How could a good God, and we could add to that, how could a good, all-powerful God, the God of the Bible, the God that Christians say is God, how could that God allow suffering? I like the way Tim Keller in the book introduces each chapter with quotes from individuals, apparently folks that he knows or he's heard or he's recorded what they've said. Here's the way he put it at the beginning of this one, to quote this individual. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, says, said Hillary, an undergraduate English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Then another quote, This isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering 
even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not, but if he does, he can't be trusted. How can a good God allow suffering? It's a very good question, isn't it? And a question that I think we all feel to some extent. And I would guess that it's a question which most of us have thought about, have wrestled with, have struggled to answer for ourselves and for others whom we talk to about this in terms of our own faith, especially in regard to particular sufferings that we've experienced or that loved ones have experienced. I can remember as a college student, as a sophomore at Dickinson, uh, as a young Christian wrestling with what the Bible said about this issue when it came to thinking about my stuttering, a problem that, as I look back in my life, had, had been, at least at that point, one of the most difficult things that I've experienced, probably one of the worst aspects of suffering, although certainly in the great scheme of theme, things, it wasn't that great. But I can remember wrestling with that as a young Christian and thinking, well, how does this, what does the Bible really say about this? And my object wasn't to disprove God. I had come to trust Jesus Christ. But what does the Bible say about this? Keller points out in his book that this problem of evil, as it's called, is not only a philosophical issue for people, but it can also be an intensely personal issue because they're struggling with suffering of themselves or loved ones. Well, what does the Bible say in response to this objection? I would like to look at our answer in four parts, the wisdom of God, the justice of God, the cross of Christ, and the resurrection. God's wisdom, God's justice, the cross, the resurrection. So, let's look at those four things. And these are, in a large part, this thinking is taken from Keller's book, but it's not even original with him. It's, it's apologetics. It's Christian answers. It's biblical answers, what many have taught over the years. He quotes from philosopher J.L. Mackey, and he puts the objection in these words, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. That's a philosopher putting it in exact terms. But Keller points out a hidden premise in that objection. Did you hear what the hidden premise was? And that it's this. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Let me say that once more. The hidden premise in that objection is this. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. That's a a pretty big hidden assumption, isn't it? Hidden premise. Keller says... The reasoning, of course, is fallacious just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen 
doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking, I like the way he says this, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. Isn't that an interesting way to look at that? Well, here's where we see the powerful answer of Scripture concerning the wisdom of God. Scripture asserts that God is all good and all powerful, both and, and that God is able and promises to work ultimate good out of the worst evil for those who trust in Him. Well, this amazing wisdom and power of God is declared in many places in God's Word. Let me just read from Romans chapter 11, where we we hear Paul in this doxology speaking about God's wisdom. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments. And the word unsearchable there, literally, how unable to be traced out. Did you ever try to solve one of those mazes, you know, that come in the little books? My grandson loves those. And you, you have a place where you start, and then you work your way through the maze. But if you use a pen, you're usually in bad shape, right? Because you start going along, and then you end up in a dead end, and then you have to go back and try another place. And, you know, you eventually can trace it out. What if you had a maze that filled this front wall with fine print? You know, you would look at that and think, well, maybe in 50 years I could find the end of that maze. I could trace it out. Paul is saying how unable to be traced out are God's judgments, His paths beyond tracing out. Who, had, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And he goes on with this doxology. The wisdom of God is illustrated for us in the story of Joseph. And so I read that to you. I read the conclusion of that story to you. This account of Joseph, Genesis takes many chapters to go through it all, and I only read the very ending of it. And so, if you don't know the rest of the story, you'll have to familiarize yourself with it. But here's Joseph as a teenager, probably 16, 17 years old. The apple of his father's eye, we all know that the multicolored coat he had, his father gave him, and his brothers were envious. And then one day, the evil occurred. They were far out herding their, their flocks, And the brothers conspired against him, threw him into a pit. Some wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him into slavery. That's suffering, isn't it? It's an evil thing. Think of your brothers, even if they are only half brothers. Think of them selling you into slavery for probably the rest of your life. And so, Genesis takes us through his life in a foreign nation in Egypt where things don't get better, they get worse, at least initially and for quite some time. And he's uh, unjustly put in prison because of, actually because of his faithfulness to God and his unwillingness to compromise and to sin with 
Potiphar's wife. And then in prison, remember what happens there? The cupbearer and the baker are put into prison for a time, and they're accused of something, and they have these dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams, and the cupbearer eventually is released and restored to his post, and he's promised Joseph that when he gets out, he'll remember him and tell Pharaoh about him and so forth and help him to get out, but he forgets Joseph. So it's one suffering to the next to the next over a period of years. The question we might ask as we think about Joseph's experience, here's a man who trusted the Lord, who knew the true God. What was Joseph thinking during those years about suffering God? Or we might say, what was Joseph praying? Well, we can assume that part of his praying was, Lord, deliver me from this, right? And that's not wrong to pray those kinds of prayers. That's according to God's will. He tells us to ask Of course, the way God answered those prayers is up to God. Joseph, though, there's no evidence that he knew throughout those years what the final outcome would be. But finally, we see unfold this wonderful plan of God that the whole household, all of his father's household would be saved by coming to Egypt in this time of famine. So when the brothers, when his father finally dies and the brothers come to him, there's this very poignant scene of the brothers fearing for their lives and making up this story. You don't even know if it's true if Joseph's father really told them this or whether they're just making up uh, this story about please forgive them. But anyway, they give this message to him because they're afraid that he's going to put them to death out of revenge. And they come and throw themselves down before him and say, we're your slaves you just see the character of Joseph, the Christ-likeness of Joseph, shine forth. And he makes this statement about God's wisdom. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What a classic statement of the wisdom of God God was accomplishing something in the brokenness, the suffering, the evil that was done to Joseph, bringing something good out of it. And Joseph, at this point in his life, had the ability to see that and was given grace by God to forgive his brothers and to not take revenge on them. But he provides for them and he reassures them. Joseph could look back and see how God used it for good. Ask yourself this, does it surprise us that the Bible teaches that from God's vantage point, with a wisdom that infinitely surpasses ours, that there are good reasons for all the evils in this fallen world? Does that surprise us? We just can't see them all. That's because we're not God. God is God, and we are not. In fact, wouldn't we tend to say that it's somewhat arrogant, somewhat proud, proudful for someone to say, because I can't see any reasons or all of the reasons, then there must not be a reason. Because we can't see all the reasons for the sufferings in this life. There are Joseph kind of stories And there are lots of stories of terrible suffering in this life that 
no one can say, oh, I see the reason for that. It's this. Johnny Erickson, in her second book, A Step Further, talks about after her first book, she's this quadriplegic who, who was hurt in this diving accident almost 40 years ago now, I think, when she was 17. And she wrote this book, Johnny, that was a national best seller. And it's about God's working in this and her trust in the Lord coming to faith in, in the Lord through this and God's working through it. But her second book, after she wrote the first book, she got letters from all over the world, accounts of terrible suffering. People writing to her and say, Johnny, it may be easy for you to see how God's used this in your life. You're a celebrity. You're on the Today Show. You know, this is great. You're a spokesman for Christianity. Sure. Uh, Wow, we can see how God's used it for you. But what about the suffering I've been through? And in her book, one whole chapter is devoted to just accounts of terrible suffering that Johnny says, I don't have any explanation for these. I don't know that in this life anyone's going to be able to say, this is why, this is the good that came out of that. But Keller's point is this. Just because we can't see the reason, does that mean there's not one? And after all, isn't that what it's all about? God being God. It's a powerful point. It's kind of like a parent arguing with a child about something. You know how children tend to be, maybe parents, you know, you've all had this at the time, a child says to you, but I don't think that's right. And a parent's thinking to himself, I've been to high school, I've been to college maybe, I've read on this, I understand all this, and my child is arguing with me, but he doesn't even know all that I know about this. You know, it's a parent just saying, a parent sometimes is befuddled about that because it seems like, you mean to say that you think you know more than me? And the five-year-old looks up and basically says, yes, I think I do. <laughs> What's a parent to do? How can you make a child understand you don't, you don't have the first idea about how this works? Well, isn't that, couldn't that be said for us? So, the first part of this answer is God's wisdom. The second part is the justice of God, a different aspect, but closely related to the first. This answer takes us further in thinking about our objection because it raises the the issue of where we even base our objections about God's fairness or what is right and wrong. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Uh, Lewis, who reasoned and taught a lot about this kind of thing, he he writes that uh, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. Lewis, speaking about his atheistic period when he didn't believe there was a God, is basically saying here, 
modern objections to God are based on a sense of fair play, in a sense, justice. In other words, uh, in evolutionary thought, what is it that makes this world develop? It's what's called natural selection or the survival of the fittest. And so, that involves death. It involves the strong preying on the weak. And so, who survives? The strong survive, and that species or that characteristic is maintained. And so, evolution takes place. That's the whole idea behind uh, natural selection and evolutionary theory. But if that is true, and if that is all there is to this world, if there is no God, especially if there's no God of the Bible, Christianity's God, then the point here is, why are we outraged at injustice? Why does it bother us if the strong take advantage of the weak? Why does that upset us? If that's the way the world works, where does this sense of thwarted justice or fairness come from? And Keller and Lewis are all saying the same thing. They're saying it comes from God. Keller puts it this way, the non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which, as Lewis points out, was the reason for objecting to God in the first place. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, now note this next part, you are assuming the reality of some extra-natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgments. Now, Genesis 18 points us in the direction, is one biblical example of this. Genesis 18 is when Abraham is interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but we know that Abraham intercedes a number of times with the Lord, and, but as he intercedes, God has spoken to him that he's going to come down and God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And to, to quote the Lord here in verse 20, he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So, God speaks about His coming down, in a sense, to see how wicked it is. And so, uh, Abraham begins to intercede with God, and he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, Abraham is thinking about justice. Would that be just? Is God going to do that? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city. Will, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And then Abraham says this very telling phrase, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right. Abraham was asserting the ultimate justice of God. Now, it's hard for us, again, to see always in this life the justice of God. 
The Psalms are full of descriptions of the fact that sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Job wrestled with that, right? But Abraham was delineating the principle behind all this. He's saying he knew that the judge of all the earth would do what is right. He had a a trust, a faith in the justice of his God, and he was interceding on the basis of that. The truth is that God is the God of perfect justice. And it shouldn't surprise us that our very sense of justice doesn't come from evolutionary theory or natural selection or anything like that. Our very sense of justice springs from God Himself because human beings are created in the image of God as much as that image is marred. And so there is this very powerful sense in every human being of justice. We feel it most sharply when people sin against us or people steal from us or offend us. Then our sense of justice... is strong. We don't always feel it as strongly as we should, though, of course. So, the answer to this second point is this. The justice of God is actually where this objection is coming from in the first place. So, if you're objecting to God because of suffering and injustice, maybe you want to step back and say, well, where am I getting this objection from in the first place? You're getting it from being made in the image of God. This brings me to my fourth point, third point, about the cross of Christ. If we think about justice, we are naturally led to this point because the cross is the place where God's justice and love met. Maybe you're thinking at this point, if you're hearing this, all this logic, all this argumentation that the pastor is speaking about here really doesn't get God off the hook in my mind. I'm still really perplexed or troubled or even angry by the suffering that I see in this world. And I think, why would God do that? Well, Keller talks about the fact that God is not off the hook. God is very much on the hook, and God put Himself on the hook, so to speak, in the fact that Jesus became incarnate. He took on flesh. He became a human being. He identified fully with us in our humanity, our fallenness, our brokenness, our sin. And the cross is where we see that. God came to earth and deliberately put Himself on the hook of human suffering. What we see in Christ's death, we see Jesus essentially abandoned and forsaken by His Father for our sin. Why was it? Keller asks in this chapter, he says, why was it that Jesus' death was not a typical martyr's death? And Keller talks about the death of great reformers like Latimer and Ridley who who spoke even as the flames came up and they died, they say, we shall play the man today and we shall light such a great candle for God that will set England afire. He talked about the Maccabean martyrs who had limbs removed from themselves even as they stood strong in their faith and people like that. And, and his point is, Jesus' death was not like that at all. Why was that? And Keller talks about the fact that it was because Jesus in this close relationship with God, the Father, from eternity past had never experienced separation from Him. But on the cross, 
as God's wrath was poured out upon Christ for our sin, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had so fully identified with our sin that he became sin for us to redeem us, as we know from our sin and from the wrath of God. So, on the cross, God is on the hook. He is fully identifying with us in our sin. And Romans chapter 3 talks about this amazing way in both which the justice and the mercy of God meet. It says in Romans 3.25, God presented Him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. And then it goes on to say, He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amazing. God can be just and still justify sinners. It's because of the cross. I read about a new reality show that's out this week. I really can't keep up with all these reality shows that are on. I, can't, I even forget what the name of this one was, but it's, it's, a, it's a reality show about taking spoiled brat teenagers from America who apparently are on, a, on another reality show. I'm not sure what the name of that show is either. But they're on this show, and, and on this first reality show, they're just really rich and everything, getting everything they want, and their 16th birthday party is, you know, they're complaining that their dad takes them in the Acura and doesn't get them a Porsche or something like that. And, uh, but in this show, they're whisked away by this plan of parents and pro- Producers, and in the pilot episode, apparently, this girl was taken to Africa for a period of time, short period of time, and was shown what real life is like, you know, and apparently there were a lot of Africans objecting about this show because the stereotyping of Africa and, and uh, not really identify with what life in Africa was like. But anyway, there was kind of this, you know, theme that she sees what life is really like, and she turns around a little bit and says, yes, you know, I've been living just for myself. But so much of the objection certainly was because you know how superficial these kinds of shows are. You know, it's just all smoke and mirrors. It's all just staged. But you can understand the people in Africa who see this being done feeling deeply you're not really identifying with us. You don't really understand us. You're just using this to make money in America. It kind of reminds me of what politicians tend to do. And, you know, this election season, I don't know how much we've seen of this, but a politician, you know, looks for the good photo op. And he goes to the inner city, for example, and is seen with inner city kids maybe and, you know, helping them out in some way. And then the photo op ends and the press leaves. And what does the politician do? Gets out of there as fast as he can, right? Yeah, and we can, we can see why that is. Jesus coming to earth was not a photo op. It was not a fakey American reality show. Jesus Christ's coming to earth was to fully identify with sinful human beings. And how much more can you identify with someone than by dying? for them. That's what Jesus Christ did. That reality show contestant did not go to Africa and die. The politician did not come to the inner city and die. Jesus came to this world 
loved us, lived among us, fully identified with us, even unto death on a cross, Philippians says. He identified as deeply as is possible. Listen to what Keller says about this. Christianity alone among the world's religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection. He's talking about the Father turning away from him. Cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. Isn't that a great way to end that? He came to end evil and suffering without ending us. That takes us back to Romans 3, that God can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If it weren't for Jesus Christ coming and identifying and going to the cross, then when God got rid of evil, He would be getting rid of all of us too because we are part of the problem. We are sinful. What an amazing truth this is. Well, the fourth point that I have for you is this, resurrection. The fourth and really the final part of the answer Scripture gives to us is resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, which also points ahead to the resurrection of everyone who is in Christ, and not only resurrection, but restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible teaches that the future is not an immaterial paradise. We usually tend to think of future and heaven as our souls being with the Lord, and we're thinking of the intermediate state when we die and go to be with the Lord, but before the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible, though, teaches the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 speaks about this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. It's really about heaven coming down and remaking earth, the universe, the physical world. In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about this, and He says, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, and He uses the word palingenesis, which the Stoics used in their philosophy. The Stoic philosophy was that every so often the world remakes itself, and you start over again, and you just keep going cycling around and around and around. That's not the biblical view of things, but Jesus takes that word and he says, at the renewal, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a radically new idea, at the remaking of all things, he says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And he's talking about what Revelation 21 and 22 flesh out for us more and what Second Peter tells us in Second Peter 3 about all the elements melting and God creating a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. You see, this fourth part of the, the answer goes beyond even the cross here. The cross says God identifies with us 
It gives us encouragement to persevere. The resurrection of Christ and the remaking of the heavens and the earth takes us beyond that. And it tells us that something's going to happen that makes everything right in the end. Keller, to quote him again, is this. The biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. Listen to what he says. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Did you hear what he said? It's not just that the life to come is going to give consolation for the things that you suffered in this life. Rather, the life to come will actually remake these things so that everything is more glorious. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are all about. There's this scene in the, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and I know some of you haven't read that and don't really care about it, but I just, it's such a great illustration of this fact that I have to bring it in here. There's this place where Sam Gamgee, the faithful sidekick, you have to think of him as the faithful sidekick to the main character. You know, he's kind of the real steady one who, you know, you just can't fool him. The gardener is really what he was, and he went along with Frodo on this adventure. And they lived through the whole adventure of all three books, and the evil Sauron has been defeated. The evil ring has been cast into, into Mount Doom. And Sam and Frodo had passed out on the slopes of this volcano when it erupted, and the eagles carried them back. And they're in this beautiful land. And Sam wakes up in this white tent, the sunshine streaming in. You know, he hasn't felt good for weeks. They've been in this terrible ordeal. And Gandalf, the wizard character, is there. And, and Sam had thought he was dead, and Frodo's alive, and it seems that everything that he thought had gone wrong is being undone. And he cries out, he said, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Isn't that a great line? And that is what Christianity teaches us about suffering. Everything that is sad, everything that is evil, it's not going to be as if it didn't happen, but God is going to so remake the universe and in the restoration turn things around that it will be as if everything sad has come untrue. That's the full answer to the problem of suffering in this life. The resurrection, the return of Jesus Christ, the remaking of the heavens and the earth. Johnny Erickson in her book, When God Weeps, which is a wonderful book that describes and, and, and deals with this problem of evil, talks about this theme. And let me just, as I close, read to you what she says about this. It's not merely that heaven will be wonderful in spite of our anguish. It will be wonderful because of it. Suffering serves us. A faithful response to affliction accrues a weight of glory a bounteous reward. God has every intention of rewarding your endurance. Why else would He meticulously chronicle every one of your tears? Every tear you've cried, think of it, will be redeemed. God will give you indescribable glory 
for your grief. She goes on to talk about it. Every tear will be redeemed. That's the doctrine of resurrection. That's what we believe in, and that's what the Bible teaches. I hope that as you struggle with what is going on in this world when you see suffering around you, and you're always going to see it. There's not going to be a week that goes by that if you read the front page, you're not going to know that something terrible is happening in this world. I hope that you know that God is on the throne, and He's not only on the throne, but this is the same God who identified with us in Jesus Christ and who promises to make all things new. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us answers to the hard questions of our lives, and maybe not the full, complete answer that we'd like to have that is awaiting in the life to come, but thank You that You've taught us from Your Word and that You've helped us to understand a lot about what suffering is and Your purposes for it, for our good. So, help us to live in light of that. Help us to trust You in the midst of the suffering that we're going through maybe even this week. I'm sure someone in this room is experiencing hardship that is a great trial this week. We pray that You would be with him or her. And if there's anyone here, we pray, who doesn't understand and know what the cross is all about. We pray that you would help that person to come to trust Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's turn.